Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am pleased to be here with Eric Topol. Eric is Professor of Molecular Medicine at Scripps Research, as well as the Director and Founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Eric, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks very much, Sam. Great to be with you. Uh, I am really excited to have you on the show. Uh, I've been a fan of your Twitter feed for quite some time. You have been one of the resources that I've tended to to turn to to try to understand the COVID-19 and coronavirus situation as it's been evolving. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, to digging into, you know, talking about your perspective on that. But before we do, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background. You're trained as a cardiologist, if uh, I'm correct. I imagine that a lot of cardiologists have their time well full studying the heart, but you've managed to really dig into the role that technology plays in in medicine and in particular, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, How did that all come about? Well, it's interesting uh, how I got into this, Sam. Back in college, I was in genetics as a major, and I always loved that area, but I drifted to cardiology, got into the interventional, that is putting in stents and balloons, arteries and whatnot. But I eventually got back to genetics uh, in the mid-90s to uh, try to understand why people had heart attacks or heart disease. And then when I got to uh, San Diego in 2006 to start up this new institute, I realized genetics wasn't going to do enough. We needed sensors and other layers of data to understand each person. And that led to uh, this whole kind of digital medicine interest. And then became pretty natural that if you have a genome and you have continuous sensor data, you need some advanced analytics to really understand what's going on. So that's kind of the progression, how it all came to pass. That is understanding each person who is unique in every layer of biology, physiology, uh, their environment. and uh, anatomy. So this is kind of the the story how it's unfolded. Great, great. Uh, So in terms of COVID-19 and coronavirus, at least as far as the, you know, work from home and quarantines and all that goes, you know, many of us are recently passing 100 days in. Uh, For folks that have been studying it closely, we're quite a bit beyond that uh, in terms of, you know, it's having been on the scene. You know, maybe we can start by having you share a little bit of your take on kind of where we are with our understanding of the disease uh, and how that's evolved uh, over the past few months. It's been amazing, really, how in six months' time, we've learned quite a bit and still every day we learn more. So at first it was billed as a respiratory virus. And then we learned that because it, it goes after the ACE2 receptor, it actually goes to many different organs, especially the heart, kidneys, and to some extent, pancreas and brain, liver. So it turned out that what was just a lung disease became complete uh, body potential for this uh, virus to have its impact. And so the other thing that kind of been shocking is the spectrum here, that you can have people 30% or more who experience no symptoms whatsoever. And then you have 
1% or less that it can be fatal. So it's quite a spectrum. And then even when those people who are this without symptom group, up to a half may even have internal damage or, or hurt that they don't even know about. So for example, with lung CT scan in four different series, we've seen this evidence of lung effects that they had no idea they had symptoms. So this is a really challenging virus. No wonder we have a global pandemic because it is unique. It's uh, stealth spread, but it can be fatal. And the other thing I think that's becoming more evidence than in recent weeks is the chronicity issue. A lot of people don't get fully recovered, can linger for a long time. That may be part of the immunologic reaction, why people feel really washed out and you still have problems with breathing and, and other issues. And so we're just starting to learn about that. And that, of course, is discouraging, too. Early on, as the disease emerged and the scientific community, and in particular, the, the data science and machine learning community heard about this, you know, lots of folks wanted to jump in and help understand this. And people really struggle to make sense of data. I think, you know, my sense is that, you know, we're still struggling, you know, there's still lots of different representations, lots of, of challenges with, uh, you know, getting clean data. But I'm curious your take on how data has impacted our understanding of the, the disease in particular and, you know, what we've learned uh, in the past six months. Well, we have learned the United States doesn't have very good arms around their data, and that's going to be more challenging. Yeah. So opposed to most countries where there's a national data dashboard, we ha we have nothing. The CDC basically didn't show up, and there was this bootstrapping COVID-19 tracking project that was developed uh, by the Atlantic and volunteers. And that's actually collecting the data, going to 56 different websites every day to try to call the number of people who were tested and the results and whatever they can get, which is limited. So we don't know at any given moment how many people are in the ICU, how many ICU beds are available in hospitals and, you know, the demographics and so many things. We just have a sense that the, the people who are affected, infected, have shifted to a younger group since the reopening surge began. But we're in a country that's leading, the, it's the epicenter of this pandemic, and it just shows you how if you don't have the data, the input, you've got some real problems with output. Are you finding that the, are there any particular analyses that uh, you've seen emerge that, you know, you're finding particularly helpful in understanding the, the epidemic? Well, one of the most impressive things is that during this surge that started, you know, in mid-June in the U.S., where we have this extraordinary steep slope of new cases, now, you know, well over 40,000. And even today, uh, during testimony, Tony Fauci mentioned it could get up to 100,000. But today, we keep seeing a, a reduction in the death rate, which is an incredible divergence that's poorly understood. That could just represent a significant lag. It also could represent that younger people are affected and they're now showing up in hospitals more, and it may take time to see that or for that to reverberate in their own communities. But because of not having data, we're, we're hampered. We're, we're compromised in understanding that. And that's an analysis that's 
at a macro level that's quite important. Yeah. Um, you've also been involved in some of the efforts around contact tracing and wearables and other technological interven interventions to you know, both understand and treat. Maybe you can give us a, a lay of the land of you know what's what's happening there starting yeah. with uh contact tracing and, and some of the the applications and implications yeah so it's interesting contact tracing is being used now in many countries but it hasn't been validated uh, and so it requires a large proportion of the people in that country or place to use it but also because it can generate false positives it could create lots of issues on privacy and confusion. And so it's alluring from a clever technical standpoint of using smartphone chirps to help alert people and try to prevent spread. And as you well know, we don't have enough human contact tracing people. So it could be a booster, but it remains unvalidated and has privacy concerns. What we've been working with is digital surveillance using smartwatches or fitness wristbands. And we have almost 40,000 people now in the U.S. where we're getting their continuous heart rate, physical activity, and if they have it on during sleep, we have that, those metrics. And we already are seeing signals that we may be able to pick up the uh, cluster of people. We have all, all 50 states covered. And as we get more and more people in, in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, we hopefully can stay ahead of the pandemic because you hear test, 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 but you can't test 330 million people, no less once, one off, but on a frequent basis. So the digital continuous with recurrent neural network analytics to understand where and when there may be an emerging cluster and then do guided testing and contact tracing. Uh, and isolation that we think could turn out to be a way to start to get some control of an unabated, unbridled uh, increase in cases, which is accompanied now by increase in hospitalizations in the states where this has been chiefly occurring. Mm -hmm. uh, so the this system that you're working on, it's not about contact tracing, but about identifying the disease in, in individuals preemptively based on different signals you're able to pick up from the, the smartwatches and, and fitness meters? Right. We had done that work with uh, flu, a flu-like illness, and published in earlier this year that we could pick up flu uh, throughout five states exquisitely well, better than other CDC methods of today earlier and as accurate. So the hope is that we can use that, but there are other alternatives for, there's um, the Kinza smart thermometer that's out there in more than a million Americans that take their temperature each day, at least one. And that's been helpful to localize a potential cluster. Uh, there's also, you know, things like the URA ring, which has got uh, lots of uh, metrics that it captures through the ring uh, chips inside the interlining. So orthogonal data from many sources could be helpful. But the reason why we picked the smartwatch is we had published data and because 100 million people in the U.S. already have a, a fitness band or a smartwatch. So it's passive and we could get a large number quickly. And of course, it relies on AI analytics to help localize where there is a potential issue. 
it's not good at individual level. It's really only useful to look at a spatial temporal geographic type uh, cluster. Okay, when you say it's not good at, a, at an individual level, meaning are you trying to identify the individuals that uh, may have the disease based on the, the data that you're collecting? In what way, if, if you are doing that, in what way is that not useful for the individual? Is it just not accurate enough to a, a signal for that individual to go do, take action? Yeah, exactly. So let's say, Sam, you had an increased resting heart rate, which is the chief metric, and it went up from your normal to, from 60 to mid-70. Okay. And your step decreased and your sleep increased. Those would all be the three parameters that might suggest you had COVID-19, but on an individual singlet, we, you know, you could have many other things, but if I found out that all your neighbors, all your network were showing similar signs, I'd say, hmm, that's mm-hmm. a signal. So it's just yeah. not sharp enough at, at a onesie or a twosie. You gotta have- Pretty coarse metrics to, to look yeah. at for an individual. Exactly. Are some of the are there you know technologies out there and some of these smartwatches that you know can give you more granularity in terms of you know temperature? You know what would you what what would you wish you had access to to make it more useful for an individual? Well, if we got both body temperature accurately and oximetry, the oxygen saturation in the blood, which now the smartwatches have or or can activate. We, we could probably start getting more granular and, and, and get signals that would be useful uh, potentially at an individual level. But a lot of people never have fever, at least half, if not more. And oximetry, the ox- oxygen saturation, you know, that's not going to drop down until the disease or the infection is further along. But what's interesting you bring up here is that because the asymptomatic carrier rate is high, 30% or more. We think that those people will have the signs, will have the higher heart rate, because we know so many of them have internal hits to vital organs, at least the lungs. So we think we'll be able to pick those up. Uh, and that's going to be important because otherwise these people would never know that they had an infection. Yeah, they were, I think that the stats early on were saying that, um, or the, the stories early on were talking about folks were losing, I forget the specific percentage of lung capacity long-term, even post-disease. And I think I always took that to be, you know, those folks that were, you know, seriously affected and ended up on respiratory, you know, um, uh, ventilators and and the like. Uh, Is what you're saying that, you know, even the asymptomatic folks will have that kind of uh, long-term effect? Do we know kind of the magnitude of potential long-term effects or the range of long-term effects for the, you know, this huge population of asymptomatic folks? Yeah, we don't know, unfortunately, because we only had those four series that did the CAT scans of the lungs. They didn't repeat any CAT scans. Mm. Uh, We do know that their lung abnormalities were similar to those who had symptoms. And we don't even have enough follow-up on the people with symptoms to know how soon it, that resolves. Most likely, it resolves in most people. But there may be a subgroup, we don't know how frequent, where it becomes uh, an enduring uh, issue uh, and there isn't complete resolution. And that may be partly mediated by the immune response, that it just is not 
either sufficient or hyperactive. You know, there's many different kind of responses here. It's the way people handle this virus is so heterogeneous. Yeah, yeah. In your book, you uh, talk quite a bit about deep phenotyping, kind of this really deep understanding of the individual on, you know, lots of different levels. You know, how far have we gone with kind of trying to, you know, correlate some of that phenotyping data to uh, information about COVID to understand, you know, what might make someone asymptomatic, uh, have an asymptomatic response versus what makes someone likely to, um, you know, have a more serious response? Yeah, that's a great question. Because is it just viral load or does some of that come from the, the phenotype of the individual? Yeah, it does come from the phenotype as well. There's been now uh, several genomic studies, getting back to my grounding, what I, the area I particularly like to work in. But there's been these so-called genome-wide association studies where you don't assume anything. You just let the genome talk. And there's been two of those. And they both found that the blood type uh, ABL blood type, that the A type is got some increased risk, perhaps 20 or 30 percent, whereas O blood type had protective effects. And there's also a locus on chromosome 3, which is uh, many different immune receptor genes that, sh- that lights up. It's even That's even more prominent. So there are some uh, genomic aspects of each of us that modulate our response. Uh, there's immune aspects uh, that are tied to that, but also in addition to that, that are starting to show up. We have seen, like, for example, there's a very rare syndrome in kids, like Kawasaki's disease, uh, that is a tied to the, the, at least some of the kids have a, an immune uh, system abnormality because 70-some percent of these people, of the kids that get this, are actually very healthy. They've never had any uh, pre-existing condition, but there's something a glitch in their immune response, where it's a hyper-immune response that a couple of weeks after an infection leads to this rare condition of multi-system inflammatory syndrome, so-called MIS-C. And this is a significant, can be fatal in 2 to 4% of children, even though it's very rare. So there's a continuum here, and it is not just the virus, not just the setting, but also the, the host, the, the, the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about kind of where we've come over the past six months and the, the role that uh, artificial intelligence could play, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, you, you'd love to see or, you know, will expect to see or, or think that, um, you know, are missing in the way we've applied AI to, to this particular situation? Well, we touched on one, which is better detection before an outbreak really gets legs. And now I think we will be able to get to that. Uh, it's already getting to be the case in Germany and in China. We're behind, like we're behind in everything here, but hopefully we'll get there. Another important application, Sam, is in people who are presenting to an emergency room or telemedicine that they're sick and they confirm that they have an infection and should you admit them to the hospital or let them stay home. And I think we're going to see algorithms that will help guide that because we want to keep people out of the hospital so they can stay in the convenience of their home with their family, loved ones, and also the expense of the hospital 
And hospitals in some areas are already maximizing capacity. So I think AI is going to help that. We've got to get validated algorithms to prove it. Yeah. Uh, the other area I think that's got lots of potential is to support clinicians. So that, for example, right now, uh, there are some difficult choices, like should you use a blood thinner? Should you put a patient on a ventilator? And if we could get all the data of not just the individual, but also as new data comes in from literature, all uh, process, we could help guide clinicians to make better decisions, more accurate interpretations of the overwhelming data that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And one of the conversations in the book that I thought was most interesting was you know, when you started to, you were kind of bringing in this concept of system one and system two thinking and uh, how you were just talking about, you know, what happens when a patient presents in a, a hospital, uh, how a lot of the success of medicine, if you can put it like that, is based on kind of system one immediate responses and how a lot of medical training is on honing that, you know, system one response. Uh, and, you know, there's a clear parallel between that system one thinking and uh, what machine learning is currently good at, what deep learning is currently good at. Andrew Wang says, you know, it, machine learning is, is best for anything that a computer can do or that a human can do in less than a second, kind of these snap uh, judgments and, and responses. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on, on, you know, this whole idea of system one and system two and the interplay with AI. Yeah, no, it's really important and fundamental actually here because doctors make a lot of mistakes by reflexive thinking instead of reflective system two thing. Uh, Danny Kahneman kind of nailed this in terms of that our brain makes reflex judgments and decisions. And in medicine, that may not be good for person's health. In fact, it leads to a lot of diagnostic inaccuracies. Whereas if we had machine support, then there would be more time to switch into reflective system two thinking and get more accurate. So you have both a combined effect of the machine processing data for that person, but also the gift of time to think, which there's not enough of mm -hmm. in medicine today. That's the ultimate gift that AI can bring to medicine is the gift of time. Mm -hmm. There were some data points that you presented that, if I interpreted them correctly, seem to be suggesting that when doctors actually do think their, uh, the accuracy of their diagnoses uh, decreases, that seem to suggest that, you know, that when they, you know, hone their kind of reflexive, you know, thinking and, and kind of make these immediate uh, judgments that they, they tended to, to make better diagnoses. Am I interpreting that, you know, those data points correctly? And, and how does, you know, how do we kind of integrate that with, you know, giving doctors more time to, to think about, um, you know, what they're seeing? Well, I think that's a little off, Sam. I think that okay. what the data showed, for example, if as a doctor, I, if I think of the diagnosis in the first five minutes in, mm -hmm. in working with a patient, if I think of it on a list, then the accuracy is pretty good. But if, if it doesn't come to mind, 
the accuracy dropped off from, you know, whatever, 90 plus percent to 20 some percent. Mm -hmm. So the point being is humans are biased. And so are, of course, all clinicians caring for patients. And we have 180 different types of bias. Yep. Uh, and so that bias gets in the way of that reflexive thinking. And so when you have support from validated algorithms that can you know, handle this data and you can provide that oversight, for example, in that example, that example I just gave, you might not have included in your mental list the diagnosis the patient actually had because you just didn't come to mind. But you got prompted because the algorithm suggested that there's a probability of whatever 20x percent that this diagnosis should be considered. And then now you're thinking about that. It never was in your mind. So that's, uh, I think, availability bias. And I think that's just one example of many whereby machine support and a human oversight is the best combination. Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about medicine you know, more broadly, you know, where... What are you excited about seeing in terms of uh, AI since you've uh, you know started uh, researching this and wrote the book? Well, there's kind of a short-term and a longer-term uh, expectation. Short-term, the accuracy of image interpretation should go way up. I mean, it really has all the potential, and we'll see it not just in radiology, dermatology, pathology, all aspects of medicine, uh, cardiology. And what's interesting is that the most of the randomized trials have been in gastroenterology to pick up polyps, randomized trials, six of them. Hmm. Uh, and ophthalmology has been leading the charge in terms of every potential serious eye condition to be better diagnosed with uh, support through deep neural networks. So that's the short term. And I'll add in that short term, getting rid of keyboards in the doctor's office, man at the bedside, that is using the voice and synthetic notes instead of having to lose that intimate eye-to-eye -eye contact that's vital for the human connection. And that's a segue to the longer term, which is restoring the medical intimate relationship, the trust, the human connection between patients and their doctors and nurses. And that's where I think we have this unparalleled opportunity if we work on that. And, and the premise there is that, you know, by, you know, shifting from a keyboard oriented uh, interaction to voice, the doctor can be more present with the, the patient and establish that trust. Or do you see a more direct role for AI in that establishing that trust relationship? Well, you certainly brought up one key way, which is the ability to actually talk to patients, be with them, have a presence. Uh, but we also reviewed the fact that it's impossible for any person now, any doctor, nurse, clinician, to review all that data and, and you know, use instead of that time where it would detract from the patient uh, interaction, that would be processed and crystallized for that clinician. But the other part that we haven't brought up really is the patient autonomy. So most of the common diagnoses, like a skin rash or a lesion, an ear infection in a child, a 
urinary tract infection, heart rhythm abnormality, the list goes on and on. AI tools will give patients a doctorless diagnostic capability they've never had before. We've already started seeing that. So we can shift the interaction between doctors and patients to more important matters, like the treatment for that condition that was diagnosed by them or things that are of important nature, like a new diagnosis of cancer or neurodegenerative disease or heart disease, something like that. So the whole idea is that we can use this foundation of analytics to restore the humanity in those. Machines keep getting smarter. Hopefully humans can get more human. Mm-hmm. And when we first started seeing a lot of the successes around uh, machine assisted or, or machine um, identification of uh, things in medical imagery, a lot of the you know media and conversations were around AI replacing uh, radiologists and the like. Uh, I think in I hope in you know the community of this podcast we're uh, beyond that. But do you feel like as a, a broader community, you know, we're beyond that, or are we still, you know, struggling with this kind of either or relationship between physicians and and AI and technology in general? Really great question. The problem is that we're still in the mindset like when Gary Kasparov played uh, Big Blue in chess and. We're still there. Almost all the papers that come out comparing the algorithmic versus the doctor rather than the deep neural network data versus the combination of that and the doctor. So whether it's radiologic images or pathologic specimens or whatever it is, uh, Sam, we don't, we're not in the mode generally. There's been a few papers that looked at that, but most of them are patient machines versus man, which is the wrong, that's not way medicine's going to go mm-hmm. uh, in the future. So we're still stuck in that mode of um, the classic, uh, I guess, competition, and it's yeah. silly. Eventually, we'll get beyond that, but uh, the, there's very limited studies that have really looked at the way it simulates how medicine will ultimately be practiced when we're at full machine support. Yeah, there was one that comes to mind out of one of the medical centers in Boston. I believe they were looking at uh, breast cancer imagery. And this was, you know, three, four years ago. Uh, it was one of the first ones that looked at uh, doctor versus, you know, algorithm versus doctor plus algorithm. And it was, you know, their result was clear that the doctor, you know, and the algorithm perform much better than either alone. Has, uh, you, you've said that, you know, there haven't been enough studies there, but has that, have we seen any replication of that across different, you know, types of images and diseases? Yes. The, the problem is most of the studies that have been done now, hundreds of them are retrospective. Okay. So what they're doing, they're just going back and they have a pristine data set and then they're testing, they're validating their algorithm and saying, well, look, this works as well or better, often claiming superior performance. The only way to really do it right, as you're getting to, which is showing that the combination is better than machine alone or the doctor alone, is a prospective study. And there are some of those, perhaps you know, more than 10 now, 
approaching 20, but those are much fewer and far between. Uh, they're just, we need more of those, just like we need more randomized trials. And is, so it, just matter, is it just a matter of time or is it uh, the cost and you know complexity or other factors associated with these prospective studies? Well, the convenience is that there's these large annotated data sets, mm-hmm. whether it's chest X-rays or cardiograms or mammograms, as you mentioned, and the, and skin lesions. They just get used over and over again. Mm-hmm. Whereas to do it right, you've got to have develop your own new large annotated data sets, and that is what the challenge is that you. As you touch on, it's expense. It takes time. It has been done, uh, but you know I think we need more of that. Uh, that'll help the field. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular studies that you are currently tracking that you know seem you know interesting and promising? Well, we're just about to start one where we think is exciting about in diabetes. Okay. But believe it or not, if you're a diabetic now, the only algorithm you have to support you is your glucose is going up or down if you have a glucose sensor, mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible. It's 2020, I think, and we're right. only, that's the best we can do. Right. So we're working on a multi-dimensional prospective study uh, and a thousand people with type 2 diabetes with a glucose sensor, taking pictures of everything they eat and drink, getting their gut microbiome, their genome. Uh, their physical activity, their sleep, their stress, you know, everything you could think of, and developing an algorithm to help them manage, based on their data, uh, their glucose regulation. And we know that certain foods have a completely uh, disparate response on an individual basis. So we hope that we can do is provide each person in the future, as this ideally uh, is validated and expanded much better than is your glucose is going up or down yeah i mean it's just it's just incredible and that's just kind of where the field is right now you know, we're we're at a primitive state where we have so much vast potential in front of us mm-hmm. yeah you your example kind of points out this idea of personalized medicine that has been, I think that probably grew out of the the work in genomics 10, 20 years ago. And I'm curious your assessment of how close we've gotten to that or, you know, where we've we've had success with that. It certainly doesn't seem from my perspective as a lay person and a consumer of medicine that when I'm going to the doctor, my experience is particularly personalized based on, you know, genome and, and all these things, in spite of the fact that a lot of the things that we said we would need in order to, to get there, the the cost and time of doing a whole sequence on an individual, you know, we've achieved a lot of those milestones. Um, you, know, what's your, what, you know, where are we and, and what's lacking? Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, last Friday, June 26th was the 20th anniversary of the human the genome sequence draft, you know, the White House and mm-hmm. the whole fanfare. And those 20 years has been remarkable progress, but not in the things that you're getting at, which is rare diseases, unknown diseases, and cancer, that is a sequence uh, helping to guide therapies in many uh, patients, uh, in people, in, in women who are pregnant to help guide whether they may be harboring serious chromosomal abnormalities in the fetus without having to go through amniocentesis. There's been select major transformative progress, 
but it hasn't hit mainstream. And as you said, the sequence can be done for $1,000, which is still expensive, but compared to a lot of other tests we do in medicine, like CAT scans and MRIs, it's not that crazy. But it isn't accepted by the medical community yet. There's still lots of resistance. And unfortunately, that is holding us back. And also, we don't interpret the genome adequately because we need hundreds of millions, if not billions, to be able to get the most, extract the most uh, information from a genome for that person. So we're still in that kind of early stage where only limited health systems have started to implement it, like Geisinger in Pennsylvania. But most places are not using genomics on a wide-scale basis yet. They're holding back. Part of it's been the cost and the reimbursement, the lack of education of clinicians, and a, and a bunch of other factors. But eventually, I think we'll get there. But I have to agree with you that 20 years post-genome sequence, uh, in some respects, it's been disappointing. Mm-hmm. When you meant, when you say uh, millions or billions, you know we'll need millions of bi- or billions. What are you referring to? Uh, samples or something else? Yeah. So or? if we had millions of people, sequenced. tens of millions of people sequenced, and then with their phenotype with follow-up, because your phenotype today may change. You may have a heart attack, or you may have a new diagnosis, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So if we, once we have all that data. Um, things like your response to medication, uh, all sorts of things. If we had a common data set with that large uh, number of genomes with the accompanying clinical information, then it becomes more valuable. Then it gets to my dream state, a fantasy state of the planetary health system where you have a digital twin infrastructure. So let's say you got sick, Sam, and uh, I could take your data, put it into the resource, find it six twins of yours that match in every possible way, which way, and nearest neighbor analysis. And then I could say, hmm, this is your best treatment. This is your best outcomes. Or I could say, here's how we prevent the condition. But we are a long ways from that. We can't even get the resource really built, uh, no less all the countries to work together to develop this planetary mm-hmm. learning health system. But theoretically possible and we are seeing it starting in areas in specific areas like cancer hopefully we'll see it much more general in the future yeah that brings to mind you know as did our conversation about contact tracing earlier on you know issues around privacy and and others that you need to be uh accounted for uh in you know realizing visions like you like yours uh anything interesting happening in that space yeah, it's funny you asked about that too. Um, Kai Fu Lin and I published a paper on this in Nature Biotech, uh, It Takes a Planet. And basically, we wouldn't be able to talk about this, this planetary health system or this you know, massive information resource without federated AI. So the data never left the place. And basically, you know, the algorithm came to the data to preserve the privacy and security and homomorphic encryption. So the new tools are now available that weren't necessarily refined until more recently that are going to help achieve this ideal of privacy, protecting privacy, uh, and, and uh, having the data in such a state that the chances of having, like we have today, 
uh, breaches and hacks and all sorts of porous nature of uh, important precious data that we can avoid that. So that's the hope that we'll employ these new methods that are actually pretty exciting because without them, these ideas would be ill-conceived. Great, great. Well, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and share a bit about uh, your perspective on uh, the field and the pandemic. Any parting thoughts or, or words for our audience? No, I really enjoyed the conversation, Sam. You've asked so many great questions and hopefully the listeners will get some uh, ideas about where the field can go because it really is exciting uh, and it could be the most important impact uh, on medicine going forward, uh, the likes of which we've not ever seen before and may not see, be, see for generations ahead. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on today's show, visit twimlai.com slash shows. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.